Amen. So there's those 13 distinctives that are found uh, within Calvary Chapel. If you weren't here two Wednesdays ago, we started looking at it. There's many people that have uh, been beginning to attend our church within the last six months, last year, maybe the last two years. And maybe you like the church, it's enjoyable to you, uh, but perhaps you don't know what makes Calvary Chapel different from a Baptist church or a Presbyterian church, a uh, Reformed church, all different types of churches out there. So our goal is to slowly but surely get through these 13 distinctives so that uh, you'd be able to know what's the difference in our church and what are the things that we're looking at. Those 13 distinctives, I'll read through them quickly. I encourage you to pick up the book, Calvary Chapel Distinctives. Um, Calvary Chapel Philadelphia just came out with a podcast that's called the Calvary Distinctives 2.0. And if you want a quick 15-minute or 30-minute overview of each of these distinctives, it's a great listen. Mike and Brian do a great job. But the 13 distinctives are the call to the ministry, God's model for the church, church government, empowered by the Spirit, building the church God's way, grace upon grace, the priority of the word, the centrality of Jesus Christ, the rapture of the church, having begun in the spirit, the supremacy of love, striking the balance, and ventures of faith. So this evening, we will be looking at God's model for the church. Now, why do we or why do I follow Calvary Chapel or the Calvary Chapel distinctives? Is it just because it's what I've been born in? Is it just because it's what I've been raised in? Is it just because that's what this church was founded on? Uh, that's a part of it, but God willing, each of us are continuing to seek the Lord and ask God, God, what is the absolute best that you have out there? What's the best? And I wholeheartedly believe as far as churches and movements and organizations, fellowships, Calvary Chapel, I do believe it's the best and most biblical movement out there. That's the reason we do it. It's not just following people. It's not because of Chuck Smith. It's because this is what we believe is the most Bible-based and biblically balanced way to do ministry and to do church. Even in uh, the book in chapter 2, it's really chapter 1, but Chuck Smith makes an important point. For many people, the second you mention Christianity, they look at you with a sour face, right? And perhaps they bring up the Crusades, Perhaps they bring up all the atrocities that happened during the church age or throughout the history of the church. Many people, they'll tell you, I don't want to go to church because church is filled with hypocrites, right? Have you ever heard someone say that before, right? There's a bad taste in many of the mouths of Americans and people all over the world, not because of their interaction with Jesus Christ, but because of their interaction with people and with bad churches, and with false doctrines. So I encourage you to invite them to look at the teachings of Jesus Christ. Right? How Jesus taught, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. He teaches that we should love one another. He teaches us that it's more blessed to give than to receive. And I believe most unbelievers would think, that's pretty great teaching, right? I wish everyone around me thought it was more blessed to give than to receive, because then I'll receive even more things, right? So continue to bring people back to Jesus Christ. We know that people have a problem with the church. Anybody here have a problem with church, church in general, the way church is? Maybe not our church, but church in general, right? Oh, you guys are the best. I have no problems with church, right? <laughs> people out there have problems with the church, 
And we should be reminded, Jesus had problems with the church too, right? First three, four chapters in the book of Revelation, it's Jesus' problem with seven different churches. And he has specific beef with each of the seven churches. He'll tell them, hey, this is what you're doing well, and these are the areas where you're lacking. So the whole idea that, hey, I don't want to go to church because it's imperfect, it's a mute issue because Jesus had issues with the church as well. But he loves them, he cares for them, and he commands us to not forsake the assembling of ourselves, as is the manner of some. So not even 60 years after the church was founded, Jesus already has difficulty with the church and is calling them out. That's why we believe that the divine ideal for church is found in the book of Acts. Chuck Smith says that during the book of Acts, the church was dynamic and it was led and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Chuck Smith says, looking at the book of Acts, I believe we see the church as God intended it to be. The model that we find in the book of Acts is a church filled with the Holy Spirit, led by the Spirit, and empowered by the Spirit. It was a church where the Holy Spirit was the one directing its operation and ministry. And you may hear that quote and say, doesn't every single church operate and follow the Holy Spirit? But no, right? Maybe depending how long you've been a believer, you would think, doesn't every church believe that, right? But you look at some of the flags outside of the churches, banners outside of the churches, teachings within the church, the way churches hurt people, there's no doubt they are not being led or waiting or empowered by the Holy Spirit. The book of Acts and the church in Acts is our goal as a church. That's simply putting this Calvary distinctive. Our goal as a church is to be like the church in the book of Acts. Mike Foch puts it this way. The church begun in the Spirit, practices the Spirit. The church is organized and led by the Spirit. And the church is to bear the fruit of the Spirit. If we don't have the Holy Spirit in our lives, according to the book of Acts, our church is is dead. It's kind of pointless, right? We'll look at that later on. But we're going to start off in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. And here's the first time you see this word church, and it's by no, none other than Jesus Christ himself. This is also one of the very few times that you see him possessive of something within the Gospels. More often than not, you'll see Jesus pointing all glory, all honor, all possession to God the Father. But here in Matthew 16, verse 18, Peter, a man that's known by often putting his foot in his mouth, right? A man that's known that's quicker to grab daggers than wait and assess the situation. Peter, he has a profound answer. In Matthew 16, verse 15, Jesus tells the disciples, but who do you say that I am? A question that each of us needs to answer. But in verse 16, Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. 
Again, we could spend a whole Bible study just on this, but every single human being needs to answer that question. Who do you say that Jesus is? Not what do your parents say, not what does America say, not what does the world say. No, who do you say that Jesus is? Another great thing we see here is that Peter is answering the question and he's filled with the Holy Spirit. He has revelation from God himself. And we don't see him in a spiritual trance. We don't see him floating. We don't see everyone around him saying, oh, he got a word from the Lord, right? We see God acting in a very supernatural way in Peter in a very supernatural way. It's just very natural. None of the other disciples maybe even notice. Ah, here goes Pete putting his foot in his mouth again, right? But yet this time, Jesus doesn't say, get thee behind me, Satan. Instead, Jesus said, hey, God's the one that has revealed this to you. So we have to be careful. So often we say, God's not speaking to me because the clouds aren't parting and we're not hearing, thus saith the Lord. It often doesn't work that way. God works by very natural means more often than not. But now we look at Jesus' answer, and he says, I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Jesus is saying, yes, Peter. Peter's name means stone. So he's saying, yes, Mr. Stone, on this rock, this word rock in the Greek speaks of a massive living rock. I will build my church. Jesus here, he's putting a play on words. Hey, stone, I'm going to build my church on this massive living stone. We could think of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. How Paul says, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. The word church here is the Greek word ekklesia, which was not a word with any religious connotation at the time. It simply meant group or called out group. If you have a fishing group or a knitting group, a basketball group, it would be the same word ekklesia. But Jesus here is saying that on this massive living rock, Jesus will build his own called out group. And it's a great reminder to us, who does this church belong to? Who does this church belong to? It belongs to Jesus. It's not my church. It's not Pastor Raz's church. It's not Chuck Smith's church. It's not Joe Foge's church. It's not Pastor Bill Gallatin's church. No, this is a church that belongs to Jesus Christ. And Jesus here promises that he is the one to build his church and that his church, his group, will never, ever perish. I encourage you, if you're going through difficulty, Psalm 61 verse 2. The psalmist says, From the ends of the earth I will cry out to you, And when my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. This is the rock that the church is built upon. 1 Corinthians 3.11 says, No other foundation can anyone lay other that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20. It says, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6, Peter quotes Isaiah 28, 16, and he says, Therefore it is also contained in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him 
will by no means be put to shame. Jesus here is not swearing Peter in as the first pope of the church. Jesus is here telling Little Stone that I'm going to build this church upon this rock, right? Perhaps Jesus in this statement, he's hitting his chest or he's giving the thumbs up to himself, letting Peter and the disciples know the church is going to be built upon him because he is the chief cornerstone. Matthew Henry says, Christ is both its founder and its foundations. He draws souls and he draws them to himself. To him they are united and on him they rest and have constant dependence. Your dependence for your walk and relationship with the Lord, it shouldn't be on me, shouldn't be on your parents, it shouldn't be on anyone else. Your dependence within your walk and relationship, your spiritual life, should be a constant dependence on Jesus Christ. Colossians 1 verse 18 tells us that he is the head of the body, the church. Finally, 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 5 Peter tells us that you also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So what we need to gather from this, and as soon we'll look through the book of Acts, is that Jesus Christ is the foundation and the founder of the church, and he uses the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, to draw people to himself and to the church. You see, it is the Holy Spirit who builds the church. And within Calvary Chapel, what we believe is that the Holy Spirit is the one who's going to lead each church. It's a distinctive that each of us have, but the Holy Spirit leads each of us in different ways. Just like through the book of Acts, he leads Peter in one way, and he led Barnabas in another way, and he led Peter in a different way. But they're all waiting and depending on the Holy Spirit. A great way to test, hey, am I truly waiting on the Holy Spirit? Or is our church waiting on the Holy Spirit? Is when there's a problem that arises in church. When there's a new idea that's in church. When there's a new situation in church. A new idea for ministry. What's the first thing that we turn to? Do we turn to bar graphs and spreadsheets and statistics and focus groups and thermometers and YouTube? Or do we wait upon the Holy Spirit and see how the Holy Spirit leads and guides our church? Who's the first person that you're looking to? Because that is the person who is leading you. If the first person you look to is YouTube, YouTube's what's leading your life. The first person that's leading you is Siri. Hey, Siri, right? Siri's leading your life. Or if we're waiting upon the Lord and saying, Lord, I'm helpless. I believe when you say, apart from me, you can do nothing. Lord, would you lead me in this? Would you speak to me? Then you truly are being led by the Holy Spirit. As long as you obey what he tells you, right? Biblically, the church and its leaders all started with receiving and being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Let's turn to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, 
verse 21 and 22. This is after Jesus has resurrected. He's already shown himself to Mary Magdalene. He's spoken to some of the apostles already. And then here in John 20, verse 21, it says, So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. And then if you turn a couple pages to your right in Acts chapter 1, verse 4 and 5, once again here we see the disciples waiting on the Holy Spirit before they do any type of work or church work. In Acts chapter 1, verse 4 and 5, it tells us, And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Finally, on this subject, Acts chapter 2, one chapter to the right, verse 1 through 4, tells us when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a, of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So again here, the disciples, they didn't look at a map of Israel and say, where do we need to put a church, right? They didn't find statistics and where's the biggest population in all of Israel? That's where we're going to put a church. They didn't go on YouTube or anything else like that and say, where do we need to put a church? No, they waited on the Holy Spirit and then the Holy Spirit began to do a supernatural, natural work among them and among the people in their surrounding regions. So again, with us, what are we looking to? Are we waiting for the Holy Spirit and the leading of the Holy Spirit? Or are we doing things in our own motives? Other churches, that's literally what they do. They look at focus groups. They look at population numbers. They look at statistics, bar graphs, research. And they say, this is where we're going to put this church and that church. And it'll take this amount of money and this type of place. And oftentimes it fails. But when a church and a ministry and a man waits upon the leading of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit stirs up within his heart a love for a group of people, or for a city, for a nation, it's amazing what the Lord can do. The words Holy Spirit appear in the book of Acts 85 times in 41 verses in the New King James Version. So biblically, the church and its leaders were led and built through the Holy Spirit, right? They had to wait till they received and were baptized with the Holy Spirit. And now biblically, the church and its leaders were moved and led by the Holy Spirit. Lots of scriptures here. We see them having a prayer meeting and facing opposition with the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 4, verse 8 and verse 31. Peter's filled with the Holy Spirit before he gives this incredible teaching. And then in verse 31, it tells us that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. 
In Acts chapter 5, verse 9, this is one of the portions of Scripture when people are like, man, I just wish church was like the book of Acts. Acts chapter 5, verse 9, I don't know if I want the church looking like the book of Acts. Because in Acts chapter 5, verse 9, we see church discipline in the Holy Spirit. Peter says to both Ananias and Sapphira, he tells her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out as well. Talk about church discipline, right? It wasn't being sent out of the church till you get healthy. No, it was you're dropping dead out of this church, right? And that's it. In Acts chapter 6, verse 3 and verse 5 and verse 8, we see deacons, leaders of the church, selected by the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 6 Right? The church has a problem. There's an issue. There's a racial issue. There's an issue that older widows are having beef with the church. That's not a good place to be as a church, right? If the old widows in the church have problems, that's not a good place to be, right? You don't want to get Abuela angry. So now these old widows, they're angry, so they wait upon the Holy Spirit. And then in Acts chapter 6, verse 3, it says, Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, that we may appoint over this business. Then in chapter 5, it tells, in verse 5, sorry, it says, This saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 7, verse 55, we see Stephen in the Spirit before being the first martyr. He being full of the Holy Spirit, verse 55, Acts 7, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Then in Acts chapter 8, all throughout the, all chapter 8, we see Samaritans which if you know scripture, Samaritans were looked down upon, but we see Samaritans receiving the Holy Spirit all through Acts chapter 8. Then in Acts chapter 8 verse 29, we see Philip receiving super speed by the Holy Spirit. If you wanted biblical answers to if you could have any superpower, what would it be, right? It'd be super speed or teleportation. Acts chapter 8 verse 29, it says, Then the Spirit said to Philip, Go near and overtake this chariot. And he runs and he catches up to the chariot by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's a gift of the Holy Spirit I want to receive, right? Acts chapter 8, verse 39, Philip gets teleported by the Holy Spirit. It tells us, now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. In Acts chapter 9, verse 17, we see Paul called to the ministry and filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 10, Peter is cleared to eat bacon, shrimp, and lobster by the Holy Spirit, right? No, that's not the point of Acts 10. The point of Acts 10 is that Peter is led to go speak to a Roman centurion and go to the house of a Roman centurion by the Spirit of God. Acts chapter 10 verse 19 says, While Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Later on in that chapter, Acts 10, verse 44 through 48, we see that Gentiles are filled with the Holy Spirit. 
the Holy Spirit fell upon all those that heard the word of God, verse 44. Verse 45, because of the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, the Jews were astonished at these things. Then in verse 47, Peter says, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit? Over and over and over again through the book of Acts. Acts chapter 11, verse 24, Barnabas, known as a good man, was full of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 11, verse 28 and 29, a man by the name of Agabus is shown by the Holy Spirit that there's going to be a great famine and he sends relief to the other churches. Finally, Acts chapter 13, to not go exhaustively through the 85 mentions of the Holy Spirit, Acts 13 verse 9 tells us that Paul and the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit and they were filled with joy. Right? Imagine if every church leader was filled with joy, right? Not filled with anger towards their flock or bitterness at the tithing plate or anger, but filled with the Holy Spirit and with joy. Another thing to note is that biblically, the church and its leaders see the Holy Spirit as the one bearing fruit within the church. In Acts chapter 2, verse 47, it tells us that the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. It's the Lord that adds to the church. We'll look at this more exhaustively in a moment. But the other thing that the book of Acts gives us is so much simplicity. And if you're like me, I like, I like things simple, right? And the book of Acts gives us simplicity and a primary focus for the church for the church's leaders, and for the church's family members. I don't know if you've ever been to a restaurant that the menu makes no sense, right? They have New York pizza and they have sushi on the same menu, right? This, this doesn't make any sense. And oftentimes we can get lost if we don't have a primary goal and focus. And the Bible itself gives us a primary goal and focus for the church, for its leaders, and for the family members. In Acts chapter 6, verse 4, we see the, the simple goal for the pastors of the church. In Acts chapter 6, we talked about this great problem that came up within the church, could have easily split the church, easily divided the church. But in Acts chapter 6, verse 4, it says, But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The goal for any pastor is to grow in prayer and to grow in the ministry of the word. That's the simple goal for pastors. It's not to become a world changer. It's not to become the biggest or the baddest or the coolest. It is to give myself continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And if I believe God is the one who builds his church, then if I'm just obedient to God and his goal of a pastor, I can just trust in him. That's the joy of following God's word. So it gives us the simplicity in the goals of a pastor. It gives us the simplicity in the goals of the church. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. I would say if our church had any specific verse as our church verse, I would say it's Acts 2, 42.
It tells us that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. The goals of a church, simple. Number one, focus on the word of God. Focus on the word of God. That is number one. He holds his word above his name. So if our church becomes just about the fellowship, just about the hanging out, just about the music, we're losing the focus. It needs to be about the word of God. Then it needs to be about the fellowship, the koinonia, the unity of the brothers and sisters and the family in the church. That as we're all focused on the word of God and we're allowing the word of God to sharpen us, to dull off those fleshly edges within our life, right? We should be growing in unity and fellowship. In the breaking of bread, speaking of having meals together and also of having communion together. And finally, in prayer. Chuck Smith says, when the church is what God intends the church to be, when the church is doing what God wants the church to do, then the Lord will do what he wants to do for the church. And he will add daily to the church those that should be saved. So simplicity in the goals of a pastor, simplicity in the goals of the church, and simplicity in the growth of the church. Because later in Acts chapter 2, after they are continuing steadfastly in the word of God, in fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers, what does God do? Verse 46 and 47 of Acts 2. So continually, daily, with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Right? If someone asked you, hey, what restaurant should I go to? Would you on purpose send them to a bad restaurant? Maybe you don't like them, right? But God, where is he going to send people that are hungry for him? Is he going to send them to churches that are not about him? Churches that are not focused on him or on his word? Not at all. But if we're trusting in God and being obedient to his word, then we can just wait and rely upon him. If we are truly seeking the Holy Spirit for each move within our church that guards and protects our church, and we can wait and allow God to add to the church and subtract to the church as he sees fit. And there's, there's comfort there for me as a pastor. I don't have to constantly be like, how many blue chairs are empty tonight? I don't have to worry about that. I have to worry, am I rightly dividing the word of God? That's my worry. Am I rightly representing God? And am I rightly dividing his word? Because if I'm guarding his word, if I'm guarding this box that he's given me to take care of, then it's on him. If people leave because they're mad at the teaching or if they leave for this or leave for that, that's between them and the Lord. But if I just focus on God's word, then I can just trust in him. And if a pastor in a church is focused on the Holy Spirit and on the word of God that guards us as a church and guards me as a pastor from self-promotion. And if there's ever something that is growing exponentially within church and Christianity, it is self-promotion. And the age of the internet has kicked that into high gear. Right? Many churches and pastors, if we're honest, they are building their brands, right? 
They're building their own brand. And it's much more difficult to build your own brand when you're in a small city or you have a tiny church out in the mountains and you have 10 people within your church. It's hard to build a brand or have much self-promotion. But when you're in a major city, if God starts to bless your church, it can become a great temptation to start getting into the flesh what God started in the spirit. And we can start self-promotion where what we're promoting, we're not promoting Jesus Christ out in Miami. We're promoting Calvary Chapel, Miami. That's not what we should be promoting. Calvary Chapel, Miami is not what saves you. There's only one name that man can be saved. And it's not Calvary Chapel, Miami, right? It's Jesus Christ. What we should be promoting out there is Jesus Christ. And today there are many pastors, right, that they're promoting their, themselves, their brand, their social media, their website, their blog, whatever the case may be. Randy Cahill uh, is a pastor in Boston. He once said, if adversity has slain its thousands, prosperity has slain its tens of thousands. And it can get to the head of a pastor. When God starts to do a work, if I begin to think it's me and not God adding to the church, pride can get in and bad things happen. That's why there's joy in constantly being reminded God's the one that adds to the church. God's the one that subtracts from the church. People are coming. Blessed be the name of the Lord. People start coming. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He's the one that adds and he's the one that subtracts. It's not my job. It's not our job to add to the church or tell each and every one of you, bring five friends to church next week. I don't care if you come, but bring five more people, right? That's not our job as a church. Our job for the pastors, for the ministers in this church is to feed the flock, tend the flock, love the flock, and take care of the church of God. Matthew 25, verse 21, Jesus says, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord. A great problem for many of us today is we're annoyed with the season that we're in. We're just annoyed with the season that we're in. Maybe next season's going to be better. Or two seasons from now it's going to be better. But the season that I'm in right now, I don't really like it. Can I just press fast forward? Can I just turn the page? Uh, talking with Sandy Adams, he said, and it's so true, we never reap what we sow in the same season. We never reap what we sow in the same season. We need to sow today, and we're going to sow today, and we're going to reap what we sow today a month from now, three months from now, a year from now, two years from now. So if we're not faithful in the little things, God's not going to give us more. If we're not faithful to sow in the little things today, he's not going to give you more. So be faithful with whatever little God has given you today. Whatever is in front of you, do it with all your might unto God and worshiping him. If you're going out and planning a church and you have five people, be faithful to love them and prepare that Bible study just as much. It feels 5,000 people and it's a huge conference. We need to be faithful in the little things. Someone, a coworker, asks you to share God's word at lunch. Be faithful to prepare and be ready for it. Don't just take it lightly. Be faithful in the little things and God will bless you with more. One final note on self-promotion, Psalm 75, verse 6 and 7. The psalmist tells us that exaltation comes neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south, but God is the judge. He puts down one and he exalts another. 
At the end of the day, exaltation comes from God himself. If we're just trying to put ourselves out there and build our brand, it's a dangerous road to travel. We know that Satan himself, he struggled with self-exaltation. And I'm sure he would love it if every pastor would struggle with that same problem. Just wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Biblically, if Jesus is the founder of the church, if he's the foundation of the church, and if the Holy Spirit is the one that leads people to church, then we should follow how the Holy Spirit acts and who he promotes. And all throughout Scripture, the person that the Holy Spirit promotes is not the Holy Spirit. It's Jesus. Over and over and over again, the Holy Spirit, the one who adds and the one who subtracts from a church or ministry, promotes Jesus Christ. In John chapter 14, verse 26, we could turn there. These three portions of Scripture are all in John 14 through John 16. John 14, verse 26, verse 20, uh, we can start in verse 25. Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you while being present with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. So here Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will teach us all things and will bring to our remembrance the words of Jesus Christ. Shouldn't be hashtagging what Pastor Zach said, right? Should be hashtagging what Jesus said, right? So many churches, so many pastors, the way they teach is they literally teach in one-liners, right? They try to teach in quotable and tweetable content, right? Something that could fit on a reel. We should be teaching and bringing people into remembrance the words of Jesus Christ. John chapter 15, verse 26. Jesus, once again here, if you have a red-letter Bible, you see all three of these chapters are mostly all red. John 15, verse 26, Jesus says, When the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. He's not going to testify of a specific church or a specific person. He's going to testify of Jesus Christ. On this topic, finally, in John 16, verse 13 through 14, Jesus says, However, when he, the spirit of truth, there are absolute truths. Absolute truth exists. It's the word of God. The spirit of truth. He's come. He will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. So again, a biblical church, a biblical pastor, it's not about glorifying himself or constantly giving you his own words or his own one-liners. It is constantly glorifying Jesus Christ and taking the words of Jesus Christ and declaring it to the church that belongs to Jesus Christ. 
Again, the Holy Spirit teaches us and brings us into remembrance of the words of Christ. He testifies of Jesus Christ and he glorifies Jesus Christ. Within the book of Acts, we don't see much self-promotion within the book period. And we see none of it within the church or the men and women that God used. The only self-promoting we see are with men and women seeking greater power and they always end in tragedy. People that want more power, more sorcery, teach me how you did that. Holy Spirit magic ends in tragedy. People starting their own demon ministry, right? And they go to get the demon and then they're running out naked and beat up because the demon messed them up, right? We don't see self-promotion biblically for the church or for God's people. What we see is God promoting who he wants and when he wants. And it's a great reminder to us. When your relationship with Jesus Christ puts your life on the line, you're going to be a lot less prone to self-promotion. A lot less prone to it. It's just a reminder for us how the church once started, there was such a great cost. We have to be careful with that in America. Are we only in it for Jesus Christ because we feel like we're a part of something bigger or we're a part of a bigger movement or it's feelings, it's about me, he's going to save my marriage, he's going to do this, he's going to do that. The primary goal of Jesus coming into this world, right, we looked at it in Matthew 1.21, is to save his people from their sins. And if you're going to Jesus for any other reason than saving you from your sins, dangerous place, dangerous place to be. One last thing that we can look at biblically, how does the book of Acts help us and the methods of the church? One really practical way to put it is biblical church membership. Every once in a while, we'll have people come and say, hey, how can I become a member of Calvary Chapel, right? Is there a meeting I have to sit in? Is there a paper I have to sign? And we just say, if the Spirit brought you here and you're in oneness with us, you're a part of the family, right? That's what we tell people. If you go to Acts chapter 8, Verse 36 through 38, we see here Philip, and he meets a new man, and right away he baptizes him. Acts chapter 8, verse 36, he says, Now as they went down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, Fill out this membership, right? (laughs) He didn't say that. He says, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized them. Again, it's not an evil thing per se, but church membership, most churches do it so that they can get an idea of who's in the church and properly take care of people within the church, call people, meet people. But what we believe is just the family of God coming together. And the more you press into the family of God, the more you're going to be a part of it. If you sit on the outside, if you sit on the circles and on the fringes, you're not going to really feel or be a part of the family here. There's the methods and traditions of church, and there's the biblical model. We can think of relationships, of family. The Mike Foch, he put it, Brian Weed, they put it as center-defined sets versus boundary-defined sets. For formal membership, a church draws a circle and everyone within the circle becomes a member of that church. 
If it's the center that defines everything, then the closer you are to the center, the more you're going to be a part of what's going on. The more that you want to be of Calvary Chapel, Miami, the more you're going to press into the circle and be a part of what's going on with the family here at Calvary Chapel, Miami. We're not just anyone in the center. Is anyone within the boundaries a part of it? No, it's those that continue to press into the center. You're a part of the family, right? There's no formal membership here. If you're living in sin and you're coming late for worship and you're leaving right when the closing prayer happens and you're living in sin, perhaps you're not really a member of Calvary Chapel Miami to begin with. The sin is going to damage you. It's going to damage your walk with the Lord, but it will have a smaller effect on the church body and probably you're not going to be confronted with your sin and you probably won't go through any church discipline. But if you're constantly pressing into the circle, wanting to be more and more a part of the church and a part of the family, if you're in sin, sooner or later, that's going to come to the surface. And if we're calling ourselves a believer and living in habitual sin, sooner or later, you're going to be confronted with it and possibly even be a candidate for church discipline if you're unwilling to repent because you are truly a member of Calvary Chapel, Miami. I hope that makes sense. Again, the more that you press into the circle, the more that you're going to care for others. And in a sense, the more you're going to be cared for. It's not you scratch my back, I scratch yours. That's not what it's about. But it's the more that you're going to be a part of the family and the flock of God. Right? God's Word talks about having that friend that sticks closer than a brother. And many of us, we have friends that are constantly in our lives, pressing into the circle of our lives And we care for one another more. There's more of a oneness there. Finally, Chuck Smith says, The book of Acts gives us the model for the church. It's a church that's led by the Spirit, that's teaching the Word of God, and that's developing oneness. That's fellowship and koinonia. It's a church that breaks bread together, and it's a church that prays together. The rest is his work. He will do it and he will add to the church daily those that should be saved. Again, and as God is doing this, he sends out missionaries. As God is doing this, he cares for the widow. He cares for the poor. But that's why we have to have that singular focus on God and on his word, on prayer. And after that, he'll continue to add to the church those that need to be saved. And he'll continue adding the healthy body parts to the church to minister to our neighborhood, to minister to our city, to minister to our state, to minister to our nation. But the priority has to stay the priority. It has to stay on Jesus Christ, Him being the foundation, and Him being the cornerstone. So I pray that Jesus is the cornerstone of your life. We could think of His analogy, the wise man that built his house on the rock versus the foolish man that built his house on the sand. What did the wise man do? He not only heard the word of Jesus Christ, but he obeyed and he did it. And the storms came, and the storms will always come in our lives. There's no one here that has never had a storm or a difficulty in their life. The storms of life, they come. But if our lives are built upon God's word and obeying God's word, you're going to go through the storms. Now, however, if you're hearing God's word and not obeying it, or if you're not even hearing God's word, period, then your house will be built on the sand. And when the storms come, and they will, Jesus tells us great was the fall of that house. 
So again, may our church, may my life, may our lives be built on the rock. Not Peter, not Pope Peter, right? But may our lives be built upon that massive living cornerstone that will withstand the ages of time for all of eternity. Because he tells us the gates of Hades will not prevail against this church. So worship team, if you can come up. And pastors, if you can come up, we'll spend a good amount of time in worship. Have enough time for two worship songs, right? And, uh, and then we'll close. So, Lord, we thank you. Thank you, Lord. And for each of us, Lord, may we be crying out to be refilled with your Holy Spirit, God. Lord, for any of us here that begun in the Spirit, Lord, forgive us if we're starting to have our life led by the flesh, Lord. If we're just starting to do things in our flesh and we're being led by the world and the wisdom from the world that's not from above, if we're being led by our own pride or the pride of the little circle that we've built around us, Lord, forgive us. Lord, help each of us to be filled by your Holy Spirit and to be led by your Spirit. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for at times when we hear your word and we disobey it. When we hear your word and we run from it, when we hear your word and we make our decision based on the fear of man versus the fear of God. Lord, help each of us to have our life built upon you, Lord, so that when the storms come, we'll be able to withstand it. And God, I just cry out right now for anyone here, if they've just had their house destroyed, if their life has gone through a serious wreck, Lord, I pray that they would be led to the rock that is higher than them, Lord. May they cry out to you tonight. May they repent and may they run to you, Lord. So, Jesus, we love you. We thank you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, I encourage you. Let's stand up and we'll uh, worship for a bit. And may each of us just be asking to be refilled by the Holy Spirit and to be led by the Holy Spirit. What makes our church healthy is not just the church. It's each and every one of you individually being healthy believers. That's what makes a healthy church. It's each of you as individuals. The more healthy you are as an individual and your individual relationship with Jesus Christ, the healthier our church is. The less healthy each of you are in your walk in relationship with Jesus Christ, the less healthy our church is. So may each of us ask to be refilled with the Holy Spirit and to be led by the Holy Spirit.